You can open in your Bibles to Proverbs chapter 6. We've been walking through Proverbs roughly a chapter at a time. We, we, we sort of handled the end of Proverbs 6 last week. In fact, we've, we've got a group joining us this morning that are on a bit of a marriage retreat, and I thought, man, it would have been good for them to join us last time I was preaching in Proverbs 6, be satisfied with the wife of your youth. But we'll talk about co-signing loans this morning. We've, we've been defining wisdom this way, and if you're a member of our church and you've been able to be here over the summer, you, you should be able to say this by now, but we've been defining wisdom as living God's way in God's world for God's glory. God's way meaning living life in conformity to His will. There's no such thing as wisdom that runs contrary to God's revealed will that's given to us in Scripture. So it's living God's way, and it's, it's living consistent with the way that God has designed this world. So it's living God's way in God's world. We've said that wisdom is a skill to navigate life in accordance with the will of God in, in, in facing the various pressures and trials and sufferings and temptations of this life. And we do this all to the end of the glory of God. Right As we've studied Proverbs, we've warned against the tendency to kind of think about this as various life hacks, do this and your life will be easier. It's not that, it's that we're hopefully humbly responding to our Creator who has reconciled us to God through Christ. We're seeking to pursue Him, not just a more fulfilled life. And so if living is, or if wisdom is living God's way and God's world for God's glory, ultimately what we've been arguing is to walk in wisdom is to imitate Christ. It is to become like Him. He is the one, and we've said this a bunch too, right? You should have this in your brain as well, that He is the one in whom all the riches of wisdom and knowledge are hidden. So if we want to walk in wisdom, we, we imitate Christ. He is indeed called the wisdom of God. So there's no wisdom apart from Christ, and, and, and in order for us to walk in wisdom, we must seek to imitate Christ. And so what we have in our text this morning, then, is sort of the opposite of Christ, right? What we have is the negative examples, the, the, the ones we want to imitate Christ. Proverbs 6, 1 through 19 is, is the ones we want to not imitate. It's sort of the, the, this idea through through negative example, Solomon gives us positive wisdom, right? So, so we learn what we should be doing by sort of observing what we should not be imitating here. And so what we get is like these three people in Proverbs 6, 1 through 19, and, and there's sort of a descending order here. It goes from sort of unwise to lazy to like the outright rebellious and disobedient, from the, from the unwise to the wicked. And so our passage starts uh, this morning with, with something that is unwise, and it's making yourself security for someone else's loans, right? You heard Dave read that. I'll read part of the text again. My son, if you, this is verse one, if you have put up security for your neighbor, have given your pledge for a stranger, if you are snared in the words of your mouth, caught in the words of your mouth, then do this. All right, we'll look at the then do this in a minute. But he starts with, if this is the case. And what, what Solomon is arguing here is that the, the, 
the one thing financially that we can do that's actually worse than kind of putting ourselves in a debt that we cannot repay is actually putting yourself in a debt that is somebody else's loan. Right? So don't do not do that. Do not become the one that puts yourself in a financial situation that you cannot handle, particularly to secure a loan for someone else. Do not incur someone else's debt by co-signing a loan for them. Okay, so I want to be I want to be clear here. I want to be fair. I, I, I don't know that there's a prohibition in the text or, or another text. Thou shalt not ever co-sign alone, right? Instead, in the book of Proverbs, we're sort of operating under, under this um, idea of, well, what, how does the world function? What is typically best here? So we're arguing this. It is typically not wise to co-sign alone, though it is not inherently sinful. And the reason I, I say that is not, not just to, so you can say like, oh, it's not inherently sinful, so I'll just go, no, I, I, so I want to be clear, I want to be fair, I don't want to lay a law on your shoulders that the Bible doesn't lay as a law on your shoulders, but at the same time, I want to be careful not to, not to lessen the warning of Proverbs. And the warning is this, it's not a good idea. It's not a good idea to assume liability for someone else's loan. And, and so here's, here's why, right? We've talked about Proverbs being super practical, or we're going to be practical this morning. If the lender recognizes the risk, and they conclude that this loan is too risky, then it's foolish for you to step in and say, well, I will make the loan less risky. I will put my financial uh, security at risk. The, the, the bank or the lender is trying to remove the risk from themselves and place it on you so that if, if they don't get repaid, now you have to pay the loan. It is now your responsibility. You get no benefit from the loan, right? But you take all the responsibility of the loan. Okay, so in, in America, you can't even say like, well, I've taken over payments for the car, so I guess I'll take over the car. That doesn't even work that way. You get zero benefit, all liability. And that's why verse 2 speaks about this as, as a snare, as a, as a trap. You're being ensnared by your words. You're being trapped by the very promise that you've made. This rash vow has now put you in a dangerous position. There, there's hunting language in the text, right? This, this word of entrapped, ensnared, whatever your translation uh, says there. It's, it's, it's hunting terminology, like a bird who wanders into a snare. The person who promises to be security for someone else, particularly if you lose that money, it's going gonna, it's gonna to wreck your world, right? You've walked into a snare. The second half, verse 2, is more like military language. You've been captured, like an enemy might capture a foreign soldier. And this is, this is serious language, right? And it's serious language that's appropriate for the thing that it's warning against. Because, you know, as we said, this was happening in Israel. This is why the warning's here. It happens in our country today. If the person co-signing for a loan cannot or will not repay that loan, then the creditor is free to come after you, the co-signer, in ways that might put you in financial distress. They can garnish your wages. They can sue you 
right? I read one story of a man who nearly lost his own home because he co-signed on a business loan for a friend. They can ruin your credit score. And, and it, like I said, similar things were on the line in, in ancient Israel. Listen to Proverbs 22, verses 26 and 27. Be not one of those who gives pledges, who puts up security for debts. If you have nothing with which to pay, why should your bed be taken from under you? So the same practice was happening in Israel. Well, they can't pay their loan, so now I'm coming after you. I'm going to take your very bed away from you in order to recoup some of this money that I've lost in this loan. And so that's the if part, right? Verses 1 and 2. If you find yourself in this situation, then do this. Essentially, he's arguing, do everything in your power to get out of it. Right? Look in verses 3 and five, three through 5. Then do this, my son. Save yourself, right? That's the, that's the, the, the big command in the text. Save yourself. Deliver yourself from this situation. Why? For you have come into the hand of your neighbor... And then the, the rest of these commands are like, how do you deliver yourself? Go, hasten, right? ESV says hasten. Some of your translations may say humble yourself, right? That's probably, probably the better translation, like throw yourself down on the ground. Um, humble yourself and plead urgently with your neighbor. Give your eyes, the, you know, by the way, plead urgently. It's like badger them. Don't quit bothering them until you can get out of this situation. Give your eyes no sleep and your eyelids no slumber. Save yourself like a gazelle from the hand of the hunter, like a bird from the hand of the fowler. So you can hear the, the urgency in the, the imperative commands in the, in the text. right? You have placed your welfare in someone else's hands. And you say, deliver yourself from that. Save yourself from that. You get sort of blasted with these commands. Go, hasten, or humble yourself. Hurry, do not sleep. Command, 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 command. And you feel through those uh, like seven commands in in those few verses, man, you need to act, and you need to act as quickly as you can. The idea is clear. Don't let the sun go down on this. Uh, don't, Don't go to sleep. Don't tarry. Don't wait. Do everything you can to no longer be obligated to another person's debts, even if it means losing sleep, right? For those of you who love sleep, you understand. So here's what we're doing. Remember, we're, we're arguing that Solomon's sort of setting up the negative example to teach us then the positive thing that we should do. So we don't want to just talk about put off. We want to talk about put on. So, so what do we do, right? What's the positive wisdom here? If it's not wise to enter into these types of financial agreements that can cost us more than we can afford to lose, what should we do instead? What's what's the put on of the passage? Well, one would just be be prudent. Be prudent. Consider the consequences of the snare. That's what Proverbs does often, right? It tells you not to do something, and then it sort of gives you the consequences if you don't heed God's wisdom. Well, one of the biggest consequences that could come from your financial disaster because of unwise decision-making is it may actually result in in your desire to be a real friend or a real pal to a neighbor. You you may actually put yourself in a position where you cannot fulfill actual, real, biblical responsibilities that you have for your money, right? Things like 1 Timothy 5.8, to care for your own family. 
Remember Paul's stern words there, that the person who does not care for his family is worse than an unbeliever. You don't want to do anything that can imperil your ability to do that. It isn't prudent to put yourself in a position that would put that at risk. Another thing that we ought to consider here is the relational cost. You know, as I sort of thought about loans and some of these things, I read this statistic this week, 40%. 40% of cosigners have to pay up, right? So how many of that percentage then ends up with relational strain, bitterness, lack of forgiveness, division? Part of wisdom is to be the ability to sort of see down the road, to, to be able to see what, what the potential cost might be, and then walk the path of wisdom. Another thing, another put on, another thing we ought to do is, is to be generous, right? The answer is not then, I realized when I just said earlier, like, don't do anything that can imperil your ability to care for your family. If, if you don't hear that right, you might be thinking, oh, Kyle told me to hoard all my money. Just in case. It's not that. It's be generous. Give, give money away if, if you can. What is warned against is putting yourself in a position that's going to imperil your ability to do what God has called you to do. And one of the things that God has called you to do is to be generous with those sorts of things that God has given you. So when it, ter- when it comes to co-signing, if you can't just write a check for that amount and not miss it, then don't enter into that obligation. But at the same time, if you can write a check for that amount and not miss it, and it's a real and genuine need, think about giving the money away. I realize not a lot of us have that sort of money lying around, but you may consider it wise to just gift money to a person. That's what Paul talks about in 1 Timothy 6 when he warns, he's really warning the rich of how to handle money, not to entrust themselves to money, but to entrust themselves to God, not try to find life in money. You don't cling to money as if there's life there. You take hold of that which is truly life, Paul says. And so if we trust that God is truly life, if we, if we believe the word of God, that God isn't, isn't holding out on us, and the only way for us to, to get what he's holding out on us is to be materialistic and to hoard our money and to be self-centered with our money. If we know that life is found in him, if we are confident that, that God is the ultimate giver and the one that has given us his son, the Lord Jesus Christ, who has actually become the redemption price for our sin, if we see ourselves as stewards rather than owners of what God has given us, then we might be in a position to actually help those who have a genuine need. So we can be generous. 1 John 3.17 warns this, But whoever has the world's goods and sees his brother in need and closes his heart against him, how does the love of God abide in him? So as Christian people, when we see others in need, particularly members of your your body, I'm not saying you can't be generous outside of that, but particularly brothers and sisters in Christ in your church, we just want to be able to, to meet those sorts of needs. So be prudent, be generous. Third, we, we might say be loving, be actually loving, right? And I, and I say that because uh, some of us have this impulse, and I would put myself in this category, like I have this impulse that sometimes it's loving to do something, but in the end, it's not actually love, right? I have an empathy problem. 
When I watch Wheel of Fortune, I want everyone to win like the same amount of money. If you have an empathy problem like me, you might have this impulse that, oh, it's the loving thing to do to actually co-sign this. I'll just trust the Lord, do this thing, that it's an act of love. Like if it blows up in my face, it blows up in my face. But actually, the loving thing might be to not co-sign that loan. You may very well be protecting the re- yourself, but also the recipient from entering into a poor financial decision. Right, I say that because generally speaking, I, I, would, I would suggest generally the banks are going to want to lend more money than they probably even should. Right, when we, when we moved here, uh, we had told the bank that was going to be the mortgage for our, or provide the mortgage for our house, like, this is the kind of, these are the houses we're looking for. And she's like, are you going to make like similar amounts of money than you made when you moved here? I said, yeah. And she said, they're going to approve you for way more than you want to spend. And I said, do not tell me that number. Because that might become my new number. But the point is, the banks, they were willing to give me way more money than they should have. Right? They, they didn't do their due diligence even and check how much or whatever. All right. It would not have been good for them to give me that amount of money. And so when, when institutions like that say, we think you're a risk to us, it's, it very well could be the loving thing is to say, I can't do that. How else can we be loving in this? Well, you know, we can probably love others by not asking, uh, putting a rich uncle in this position, right? Or a church member who seems to be pretty well off financially. It's, it's, just, it's just unloving to go to them and say, hey, help me out here. Lastly, if you, have, if you find yourself on, on like the loan side of this, right? Be sure to be faithful to meet your obligations. Don't push your obligation off onto the cosigner. The bank will go after them. It's, it's, it's again, unloving to say, well, I got a cosigner. They'll take care of it. Right? Psalm 37, 21 says, The wicked borrows and does not pay back. And so you pay back what you owe, so you make sure that this, this distress doesn't fall on someone else, and you can also work extra hard to free that person from the obligation, restructure the loan or pay it off. All right. So, so again, there's three people that we sort of want to avoid Imitating One is the one who puts himself in financial danger through unwise decision-making. The second, then, is the sluggard. The sluggard. Look there in verse 6. Go to the ant, O sluggard. Consider her ways and be wise. Without having any chief officer or ruler, she prepares her bread in summer and gathers her food in harvest. How long will you lie there, O sluggard? When will you, you arise from your sleep? A little sleep, a little slumber, a little folding of the hands to rest, and poverty will uh, come upon you like a robber and want like an unarmed man. So even if you're not super familiar with that sort of language, right? We, We don't often use the language of sluggard. But even if you're not super familiar with that, you can kind of look around the context and get an idea of what this word means. You can look at the, the appeal to look at the ant and look how hard the ant works and also sort of the mocking questions, how long are you going to lie there? And, and then you, you, you kind of use your context clues there and you say, okay, the sluggard is one who is consistently lazy. 
a lazy person whose personal comfort takes precedence over all other responsibilities. Work can wait. Church can wait. Family can wait. Kids, mom and dad can wait, right? I'm not saying that's what you should say. I'm saying that's what the sluggard says. A sluggard is idle, right? He moves through life like like cold syrup trying to be poured out of the container. It just sort of moves slow. It's just hard to get going. doesn't want to go anywhere. And if we're honest, this impulse sort of dwells in each of our hearts. So the question is, well, what does Solomon say to us? What, what, what does a sluggard look like? How can I recognize, even in my own heart, these sort of impulses? And how can I recognize what the Bible calls a sluggard? Well, Solomon tells the sluggard to look at the ant there in verse 6. Look at the ant as an example of hard work. Study her ways, Solomon says, and become wise. And this is, this is humbling. Right? This is a humbling thing for, for Solomon to say here. It's like Solomon says to us, come here, I've got a, I've got a teacher that I want you to learn from. I've I got a teacher that I want you to study from. And you sort of walk down the hallway, you walk past the bookcase, it's got Calvin's Institutes in it and John Owen's Complete Works, and you're like, is that my teacher? No, he, you just keep walking down the hallway, you go outside, he points at the dirt, and as you squint, you see a little ant, and he says, behold, that's your teacher. That's the thing that I want you to study and learn from. That is actually quite humbling. Right, The one who was called initially in Genesis chapter 1 and 2 to exercise dominion over creation is now called to study a little piece of God's creation and learn from it. And so as none of us are perfect here, if this is an area of particular struggle for you, know that change begins with humbling yourself before God. You know, we do a lot of biblical counseling around here, oftentimes we realize that laziness is so contributing to what they come in for counseling. I, I don't know that I've had anybody come into biblical counseling and say, I'm lazy, I need help. And that's why I'm calling for humility here, because oftentimes we don't see it in our own hearts. We see, the, we see sort of the, the outer effects of, of laziness, and it creates these issues in our lives, and then we say, now I need biblical counseling. When a lot of times, part of what is sort of creating part of the chaos in someone's life is laziness. So we have to humble ourselves, put away, we'll see in a minute, put away our justifications, put away our excuses, admit to God that, hey, I'm a sluggard, I've got room to grow here, Lord. Please help me to be diligent and to learn and to grow here. Repent of being a sluggard, repent of laziness and throw yourself at God's mercy. He will empower and can empower change in you if you are in Christ this morning. So how do we, how do we recognize laziness? How do, we, how do we avoid it? Well, Proverbs teaches us quite a bit about the, the lazy person. Some, a lot of it's going to flow right from chapter 6, but we will sort of kind of look at other passages in Proverbs as we kind of zoom out a little bit and Think about this idea of the sluggard. 
The first thing we see in, in this call to look at the ant is, is a sluggard, he needs continual supervision. Go to the ant, O sluggard, consider her ways and be wise. Verse 7, without any chief officer or ruler. So there in verse 7, notice what Solomon points out about the ant. There's no like, there, there is a queen ant, but there's no like ant that's sort of driving the whip behind the worker ants, right? There's no one who's kind of dragging the lazy ant down the, down the road, getting them to actually cut up a leaf or whatever the ants do, come in your kitchen, steal your sugar, whatever. Whatever they do, right? There's no like chief ruler who's like driving these ants to do the work. So the sluggard, what, what do they need? They need that. They constantly need somebody looking over their shoulders, helping them do what they should do in order to be faithful. The sluggard lacks that sort of internal motivation that's needed to work well, that's seen in the ant. The other thing about the sluggard, he, he, he lives only for the moment, or we're being sluggish when we live only for the moment. Don't just think in your mind, oh, he's talking about like, the sluggard does this, that's not me. Well, okay, let's try to see ourselves in these two. We are being sluggish if we only live for the moment and don't work hard to prepare for what's coming down the pike. That's what the ant does. That's what's so impressive to Solomon about the ant in verse 8. She prepares her bread in summer and gathers her food in harvest. So the ant is diligent when there's abundant food to provide for themselves when there is not abundant food. She plans ahead. She works hard when it would be easy to not work hard. And and you could say, well, why do I need all this excess? I'm just going to chill out and take a nap. The sluggard then, on the other hand, procrastinates. Not not looking towards the future, but living only for the immediacy of the moment. In fact, Proverbs 20 verse 4 sort of takes the illustration of the ant and just outright says what Solomon's implying in our text. It says, the sluggard does not plow in the autumn. He will seek harvest and have nothing. Too lazy to do work when he's supposed to. So when he needs money, sustenance, crops, he won't have it. The sluggard also loves rest and and recreation. We saw that in the sarcastic questioning that began in verse 9. Like, how long are you going to lay there? Proverbs 26, 14, some of the most... Biting, sarcastic language in Proverbs is written towards laziness. And it's just meant to push us to be like, okay, I don't want to be that guy. Proverbs 26, 14. As a door turns on its hinges, so does the sluggard on his bed. So the lazy person will not make up his mind. He will not take action on responsibilities, preferring leisure and and rest, right? I'm not condemning actual rest. Don't. Work yourself to death in the name of, I'm better than the sluggard. That's, that's not the right response here. We want to trust the Lord. Trust the Lord with the energy He's given us. Trust the Lord with the time He's given us. Glorify Him with what He's given before us. So unlike the ant, our heart tends to whisper like you can deal with that later. Don't, don't worry about it. You can procrastinate. Just relax a little bit longer. And this series of compromises leads to big-time problems 
down the road, right? The guy keeps saying like, well, I don't have to plow, I don't have to harvest, I don't have to work, and then the plants are there or should be there, he has nothing to harvest. Right? In fact, verse 11 warns of the natural consequence of laziness. Again, Proverbs deals with life as it typically is. We could probably point to examples of somebody who had a rich dad and he was lazy, but he was rich because he had a rich dad who gave him. But typically, verse 11 says, what's going to come upon you is poverty, is poverty. The sluggard also is an excuse maker. Look there in verse 10, a little sleep, a little slumber, a little folding of the hands to rest. That's all I'm going to do, right? There's always a reason why he's not able to do a certain task. Always a reason he can't get off the couch, get off the bed. Proverbs 22:13, and and in fact, a in another place in Proverbs, exact same quote, the, the sluggard says this, there's a lion outside, I will be killed in the streets. I can't get out of bed. There's a lion out there, and it's going to kill me. Right? So the sluggard is, is an excuse maker. Right? I, when I was a kid, my go-to excuse was this, my video game doesn't have a pause button on it. I was lazy and I was lying because it did have a pause button. We all have excuses. But what Proverbs does sort of takes it off the table. There is no lion outside. Right? What's outside for the sluggard is work, opportunity, chance to serve others with the energy that God has given them. Right? They spend so much energy on figuring out how to wiggle out of responsibilities that if they would channel that energy towards their responsibilities, they could accomplish much for God's church, much for the glory of God. Jim Neuheiser said this. I thought it was appropriately sarcastic like the book of Proverbs. He says, I have often thought that many sluggards, if they worked as hard at a job as they work at avoiding work, they could be really wealthy. Okay, so the sluggard is an excuse maker. The sluggard hates hard work or any work for that matter. Proverbs 26.15 says this, A sluggard buries his hand in the dish. It wears him out to bring it back to his mouth. Man, what an image. Right? You've got your Skittles there. Skittles went back to lime, thankfully. And you sort of like put your hand in the dish, and it's too much work to bring the Skittle. I mean, that's, again, it's, it's sarcastic. It's meant to be sarcastic. It's meant to cut us a little bit. Like, this is what we're being like when we give ourselves over to laziness. Hates hard work. He will not finish what he starts. These small bursts of motivation don't last long. Doesn't stick to tasks long enough to see them completed. Also, the sluggard is proud. Proverbs 26, 16 says this. The sluggard is wiser in his own eyes than seven men who can answer sensibly. Right? The sluggard, the sluggard is actually proud. And so what Proverbs 26 says is at the core of, of our laziness is actually a prideful heart. The sluggard knows better. He is too good to work at maybe the job that's in front of him. He exists at the center of his own universe. You know, it is, so, so it's actually an expression of pride when we say, I'm only going to do what I feel like doing. Right? That's a proud heart. And we see this 
self-centered pride in our last characteristic of the sluggard here. It's that the sluggard expects others to provide for him. The sluggard expects others to provide for him. In Solomon's example, right, of, of the guy who doesn't um, work when he should be working, so he has nothing to harvest when, when the harvest comes around, well, what, how, how's he going to end up? He's going to end up somebody who's dependent, especially in Israel, right? There was, there was laws that, that were meant to provide for people who didn't have enough food, so he's, he's dependent on others to provide for him what he could have very well provided for himself. And this isn't just an ancient Israel problem, right? Paul was actually fighting this in Second uh, Thessalonians. It may have been a theological problem. Why work? Jesus is coming back. But he addresses this, this idea of not working. And this idea that because they didn't work, they became dependent on others. Now, obviously, you know, you can read 2 Thess 3 as you have time. We don't have to necessarily turn there. I, I want to sum up and maybe read one verse. But obviously, Paul's not talking about those who have, through, through no fault of their own, genuine need, right? Of course, the church feeds that person. We just read 1 John 3, 17, that if you don't do that to a brother who's in need, where's the love of God at? Do you even, do you even know God? So we're not talking about those who have real need. Of course, the church feeds that person. But, man, Paul has really hard words for those who sort of strain the body by asking the body, the church, to provide something for them that they should be providing for themselves. Right? 2 Thessalonians 3.12 says this, Now such persons, he's talking about the idle person, the one who's not obeying Paul's command to work hard and to provide for yourself. Now such persons we command and encourage in the Lord Jesus Christ to do their work quietly and to earn their own living. So in Proverbs, well actually let's say in 2 Thessalonians, what what Paul sort of envisions, if we want to borrow some language from Proverbs, the church is sort of like this, this anthill of people who are busy working, working for the glory of God, working not only for their own responsibilities, but there's needs in the church that need to be met. There's widows who need to be cared for. There's, there's those who are suffering that need to be comforted. There's those who are running from the Lord who need to be admonished. There's, there's people outside the church who need to be evangelized. And Paul says, I just can't stand for the church to be distracted and use energy to, to help those who could otherwise help themselves, but they've given themselves over to laziness. Paul says, warn that person like a brother. Confront that person. Right? There's, too much, there's too much energy that needs to be put into serving Christ in legitimate ways for the church to busy itself with those who choose to be lazy. All right, please understand. Again, I'm not talking about those who have genuine need. We want to serve and love them well. All right, what's to put on before we get to our third group here? Put on. Remember that everything you do or don't do brings glory to God or shame on the name of Christ. Remembering then that everything we do, we're called to do in the name of the Lord Jesus. That is to do it as his representative, to do it as his ambassador. We work for the glory of God, 
then and not the approval of others, right? Like the like the sluggard who needs somebody looking over his shoulders. Well, if somebody's going to notice, then I'll work hard, right? We work not for that person looking over our shoulders. We don't really care that much about the person looking over our shoulders. We care about the glory of God. So we work hard because we know our work is commendable before God. Secondly, we confess our pride and our self-oriented thinking that leads to slothfulness. We confess our pride and our self-centered thinking that leads to slothfulness. Now, one thing you can do this week, particularly if you're like, man, the God, is, God has convicted me of this. Like, you can just write out one way today, write it out. You're going to serve this person in this church, and you're going to do it this way, and you're going to do it before next Sunday, and you're not going to let any excuses get in the way. Find a way to serve somebody this Weak, right? If the if the problem is self centeredness, we can work towards repenting of that and being focused on our brothers and sisters in Christ. All right. The third negative example is the wicked person, right? So what what Solomon does here in chapter six, he addresses the son, but warns him about unwise financial dealings. Then he speaks to the sluggard, right? He addresses the sluggard. Oh sluggard, look at the ant. And now he speaks of or about the wicked person. Or you see there in verse 12, a worthless person, a wicked man. That that word worthless is sort of a shock to us at first, right? Maybe. You know, we're used to speaking of everyone with inherent dignity and, and worth because they're made and created in the image of God. I don't think Proverbs is really pushing on the image of God here as much as it's saying this person is, is wicked. They're always pushing against the good. And since they're always pushing against the good, then they have become worthless, right? Of no use. The idea is that they're without profit or use because they've given themselves over to wickedness. You know, we've even seen this in Proverbs, that those who, who walk in God's wisdom live a life that's, that's worth living, right? But the worthless and wicked person is the one who, who walks against that, hates all that is good. They're not naive. They're not the simple that we've seen here in Proverbs. They are stubbornly wicked. In fact, that Hebrew word for worthless person is probably one you'll actually recognize. It's Belial. Right? If you don't recognize that, that's okay. But it's one of the names that's, that's given to Satan in the, in the New Testament, 2 Corinthians 6. So the chief worthless person is Satan, who abhors all that is good and beautiful and glorious. He rebels against God's created order continually, and he wreaks havoc and sows this disunity and division wherever he goes. So the person described in Proverbs 6 is simply what we might say just following in his father's footsteps. Jesus said of the Pharisees, you are of your father the devil. It means the son looks like the father. The son looks like the father. So actually, as we look at these verses, you may be familiar with these as like the seven deadly sins, but if, if, if we look at these verses... The, the chief issue that I think is driven at here in the text is that the worthless person is the one who creates disor- disunity. 
The worthless person is the one who creates disunity. I say that for a couple reasons. I think 12 through 19 is its own section, and twice it comes back to this idea at the end of the description of the person. They sow, disor- they sow disorder, they sow disunity at, uh, in verse 15 there, or 14, continually sowing discord. And verse 19, one who sows discord among the brothers. So I think the, the, the repeated emphasis in the text is that they are one who creates division and disunity, thrive on it, they love that. Right? The other reason I say is when you see this wording like there are six things the Lord hates, yes, seven things that are an abomination to him, you see that sort of wording in different places in the Old Testament. Typically, the idea is that the emphasis is going to fall on that seventh thing, that last thing that's mentioned. Well, in our text, it's again disorder and disunity. It's sowing discord among the brothers. So the crooked speech that's mentioned in verse 13, sort of the, the, the shifty nature of the man in verse 13, sort of passing signals with his body there in verse 13, the evil heart of verse 14 are directed towards the end of creating division and disunity. Right? That's what's on uh, Solomon's brain here in this text. So he hates these things. In, in this particular passage, of course, other things are things that are abominations to the Lord. This is not a complete list. These are not the only things that God hates. There's other things that are on the list. But here, God hates these things for a particular purpose. It's that they cr- create division and disunity. So what does he hate? He hates haughty eyes. That is, eyes that are lifted up. You're sort of, you know, it's an image of pride. It's, you're looking down on everyone else. Even God himself is, is below you. Your eyes are so high that you look down on everyone. God hates pride for all kinds of reasons. One of them is pride creates division, right? We say sometimes that the, the sort of the oil that lets the engine of the church not break down is humility, right? We need humility to have unity. Well, God hates pride because pride creates division. God hates a lying tongue because it deceives others and it hurts others, It gossips and it slanders in order to elevate one person above another. It tears down in order to placate the pride of the liar. God hates hands that shed innocent blood. So instead of using things, like we talk about being generous, instead of using things to love people and to serve people, this, this person loves themselves so much that they're willing to kill people to gain more things. Right? They're completely backwards. That's what James 4 actually says. You desire something and you don't have it, so you murder. Um, and of course, these, these actions, right, and these words, the, the lies, the violence, well, where do they come from? Well, we've, they come from our hearts. That's what, um, you know, a heart that devises wicked plans there in verse 18. We've seen that all activity sort of springs from the heart. And God hates the heart that plots evil. God sees the heart and despises evil intentions that dwell within the heart. God hates, the text says, a false witness who destroys another person through providing false testimony. And and it ends, again, with God hates the one who delights in dividing others. These sorts of things the text says are abominations to God. It's, it's sort of in the text, like from his soul he hates these things. 
right? They, they turn his stomach. He burns with anger towards them. He detests them. Unrighteousness and wickedness and, and, and sowing discord and sort of things that are mentioned in this text are totally and completely incompatible with the God who is holy, holy, holy. God separates himself from wickedness and from the wicked themselves. Right? And this hatred is not only a, a pulling back, it's not only a separation, but it is active displeasure towards those who remain in sin. Active displeasure towards those who remain in sin. He brings eternal wrath on all those who fail to turn to Christ and find rest and forgiveness in Jesus Christ. That's the point of verse 15. Therefore, calamity will come upon him suddenly. In a moment, he will be broken beyond healing. So, pride, lying, slander, violence, divisiveness. Again, we've been looking at the book of Proverbs. These are not just character flaws. Not just things I need to work on. Not just things I need to fix. These are expressions of a heart that God opposes and results in eternal judgment and separation from God. In fact, we should all be humbled this morning because Dave even prayed Romans 3 this morning in his prayer that we all together have become what? Worthless. We were this person, right? Separated from God. Children of wrath, deserving of His judgment. Yet in Christ, He bore our sins, and we might have forgiveness from Him. We might be reconciled to Him. We might we, 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 we go to battle against these, these sort of character things in our hearts, but ultimately we're justified not by our own works, not by, oh, I'll no longer be the worthless person after I heard that sermon. No, it's coming to Christ, being cleansed of your sin, credited with the righteousness of Jesus. And so in this way, just, just thinking about this for a moment, what a wonderful thing, what a wonderful thing that Christ produces in His church. When He not only deals with wickedness, Right? He not only deals with wickedness at, at the cross through Christ, He not only makes children of the devil children of God, He not only makes the worthless person completely righteous in Christ, but then what, what does He do? He, he takes people who, left to their own devices, would completely and utterly just devour and destroy one another and, and create division and disunity for our own sick pleasures and joys and trying to elevate ourselves above each other. And He creates a community through the power of His Spirit, a community that's united, that's together, that loves one another, that isn't seeking to elevate themselves over others, but wants to give of themselves so that others might be blessed and served. He creates in the church through the gospel and through the Spirit and through the preaching of His Word a people that are together, that want to become like Christ together. right? And what is, what is Christ like? He's the opposite of the worthless person. He's not haughty. His, his eyes weren't lifted up. He humbled Himself. And He entered creation, taking on humanity to dwell among His creation. He doesn't have lying lips. He's the very expression of that which is true. He doesn't engage in the shedding of innocent blood, but He shed His own innocent blood on the cross for our sin. 
He's not wicked in heart, but he is pure in heart. He's not evil, but he's truly and genuinely good. He's not a false witness, but a true witness who came with words of eternal life. He hasn't come to sow discord, but creating in himself a community of love and unity, all to the glory of God. Lord, help us to become like Christ. Let's pray together. Lord God, we're thankful for both the work of Christ in justifying us and also the work that the Spirit continues to do in us in conforming us to Christ. May we be both confident in the work of Christ on our behalf, not thinking that we need to prove ourselves or earn any sort of righteousness. May we be confident in that and also driven by your Spirit to put away the the desires of the flesh and to, to become like Christ. In Jesus' name, amen.